for me in my work right now and and I am retired but I like to uh uh work a lot around food so i'm always uh, like to say this is a palestinian dish and this is a palestinian dish and this is a palestinian dish because we don't want we feel that basically the occupation the israeli occupation of our land is palestine is trying to make us disappear so we try many different ways in saying hey we've always been there and we are alive Welcome back to Seeds and Their People. I'm Chris Bolden Newsom, farmer and co-director of Sankofa Farm at Bartram's Garden in sunny southwest Philadelphia. And I'm Owen Taylor, seed keeper and farmer at True Love Seeds. We're a seed company offering culturally important seeds grown by farmers committed to cultural preservation, food sovereignty, and sustainable agriculture. This podcast is supported by True Love Seeds and now also you. We just started a Patreon a few weeks ago so that you can help support our seed keeping and storytelling work. And we already have 11 patrons. Uh, Thank you all so much. We encourage more of you to sign up to help us make this podcast. So you can become a monthly uh, donor or patron for as little as $1 a month. I wanted to read a message from one person who signed up named Allie. I just wanted to thank you guys for the podcast episode on Karen Farmers in Philly. I really enjoyed it. It's so interesting to learn about the diverse seed keepers in this city. I work as an ER doc in South Philly, and it's always great to learn more about the community I serve. Your podcast is my favorite thing to listen to on my way home from a stressful shift. Thanks again. Your work is wonderful. And congratulations on the baby. (laughs) Thank you so much. So... We're going to launch into a new episode here, obviously, and it's about Anand Zar, a pal- Palestinian chef friend of mine here in the Philly area. Uh, if you have the seed keeping calendar on your wall, you have a few more days of looking at Anand and her husband George's face, and they're holding a bunch of malachia in their arms. Uh, Anand is the one who gave us our Palestinian malachia seeds and our Palestinian kusa seeds. Um, and she's just a, a great friend. Um, and you can get those seeds in our catalog. Yeah, this story um, was definitely, well, all about everything that we, I, I think, get the blessing and the opportunity uh, to talk about uh, on this show um, is always very exciting and, and always has, um, you know, some particular uh, rewards and surprising uh, twist to it. But I am very excited uh, to learn more about Molochia, um, this wonderful green um, that Anan uh, really uh, goes into detail about, um, you know, in terms of how it is uh, the basis of, of 
of really an entire food culture and a connecting um, food and crop uh, to so many people. Uh, she focuses on people in uh, the, the the Levantin and, and the Mediterranean and uh, the Middle East. Um, you know, but I mean, I think that, uh, you know, just in doing even more research, you can see that this is a green that's eaten by people all over. And and, and she definitely alludes to that, uh, to some of the uh, cross-cultural connections that she was able to make even outside of her cultural and language group uh, for other people who eat this. So I was very excited about it. And again, it, it gives me a deeper reverence for this uh, green that we also grow as part of our African diaspora collection at Sankofa Community Farm. Yeah, and you know, we did a whole episode about Malchia, so you get to hear from a lot of our friends from Nigeria and Vietnam and the Philippines and Haiti and and so on in that episode. And this is kind of a re-release of her interview that was part of that episode, but I wanted to make it its own thing and honor more of her story. We, we put in more pieces of her interview to this episode that you're listening to now. Um, and also, I was able to go a couple days ago to interview her a little more in preparation for this episode. So if you heard our Malachia episode, a lot of this will be familiar um, and some of this will be brand new. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, talking about how food is is a connector, but uh, it's also, um, you know, sort of a, a, a touch point or a springboard uh to to so many of our other life and sovereignty issues, uh, and I will get into you know what Molochia uh, means for Palestinians, uh, and and it will become a, a, a sort of a backdrop to talk about uh, her experience as a Palestinian woman um, growing up, you know, a, a part of her life in Palestine under occupation, um, and what all that has meant. So she's going to get into you know sort of the 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 life issues. Um, as well as uh, talking about the crops um, that are connected to this wonderful food. Um, so I would advise everyone to go out and learn more about Molochia. And it, I, I, and I actually, I was surprised uh, in there. You know, she, she talks about the difficulty of growing it here. And I guess I don't have the experience of, of growing it anywhere else uh, outside of the East Coast. Uh, but I, I thought it was pretty easy to grow maybe because I have a lot more space. Um, but it's it's definitely a crop that I would encourage uh, everybody to plant a little bit of and learn to love. Just a note that the noises you're hearing outside, you know, our street is being redone right now and there's lots of big trucks and we're going to get a nice, fresh, paved new street, but it's loud. And this is our only time to record this. Thank you, City of Philly. <laughs> Thank you. Another quick note is that we talk about Malachia so much in this episode, and I don't think we mentioned that it's what we call jute or Egyptian spinach. In other languages, it's called saluyot, ewedu, lalo. It's got a lot of names, apoth. Um, and so that's that's what we're talking about in this episode, jute or Egyptian spinach, um, when we mention Malachia, Malachia. And the kusa is the same species as our summer squash, like zucchini. Okay, we're going to go in now to the interviews. And this first one, again, was from February 2020 at Anand's house in Glen Mills. 
And we will also hear a quick clip somewhere in there of Anand's visit to our farm last fall, 2021, to bring some cuttings of za'atar oregano um, and some tasty treats. And then it'll finish with an interview from earlier this week, um, May 2022, at Anand's house again. All right, enjoy the episode. Thank you. Thank you so much for speaking with me and our listeners. Uh, can you say your name and, and explain where we are and who you are? Yes, um, my name is Anan Jardali Zahir, and I live uh, in Glen Mills, PA, which is about 22 miles southwest of Philadelphia. And we came, we've been in this area all, since 1980 because of jobs. My husband used to work in a local company here. And I have four children. I am Palestinian. I came to this country at the age of 11, but to California. So the first 12 years in this country, I did live in California. Then I lived in the Middle East for three years, and I've been here since 1980. And uh, I had, uh, I, I actually was a teacher, and not a certified teacher, but I taught privately in the in the Philadelphia in the PA Department of Education in a summer program. And, um, but I also had a restaurant from 95 to 2001 in uh, Wilmington, Delaware. And uh, it was mainly uh, Middle Eastern food, Mediterranean food, uh, which, I mean, I love to cook, cook. I'm a great cook and I have four children, so I really had to cook. Uh, great. Can you describe a little more about or can we start with your earliest memories of Malachi? And can you tell us how you pronounce it? Okay, I pronounce it Malachi. Okay, and this is due to my uh, regional accent of Northern Palestine. Uh, some people in the south, in Gaza and in Egypt, they pronounce it Malachiya. And it's a it's 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 a very very delicious uh, dish that we prepare, and I make it. I personally still make it once a week in my house, uh, and. It's prepared differently. Now, I make it different than maybe a village that's only 10 kilometers from where I am in, in Palestine. So it, it even has regional differences in preparation of the actual dish. So how, how well, before we get to the preparation, because I'm very excited to hear how you make it, um, what are your earliest kind of sensory memories in, of, of interacting with this plant and this dish? Oh, my, my earliest one is, and, and we all dreaded it, you know, my mother would buy huge bushels in Mlukhiyi, and then we would sit on the floor, and we would have to sit for hours taking the leaf off the stem, okay, and then she would wash it, and then we would put it on, in those days she dried it, and at the, of course when we first would uh, prepare it, uh, or take the leaves off the stem, she would cook it fresh. And then for the rest of the season, she would dry it and, and store it in muslin bags. And we loved it. And my mother, I, I believe, only made it with chicken. And that's how I make it now. And it's made uh, several ways. But it is, it is a dish that most Palestinians and most Arabs love. 
okay and it has this um, consistency of and and that's why some people don't like it especially non-arabs because it has a slimy consistency like okra in a way but we do things to get rid of that and not completely i mean it's it will always be there but it is extremely nutritious and delicious it could be eaten like a soup or the way my mother made it, which I do not make that way, is she makes it very thick, okay, with chicken, and she takes pita bread and scoops it. So she doesn't even eat it with a spoon or a fork. So she would take the pita bread, and because it's so thick, she scoops the mluchiyya and the chicken, and that's how she eats it in her mouth. Awesome. And have you always eaten it, even when you moved to California, even when you moved here? And where did you get it? Oh, now, for example, when we moved to California, my mother, our family really missed it because we couldn't find it anywhere. So um, my mom always had a garden, so she grew it. Okay, in California, she grew it. And and then later on, I would say in the last, because of the Arab-American community has grown in this country, so we find it now in Middle Eastern stores, and most of the time it's frozen. So I buy it frozen, and it is from Egypt. Okay, wow. And so, but you also continued to grow it yourself for a while. Yes, yes, I grew it for actually at least 10 years here in my backyard garden. And uh, maybe I'll grow it this year again. Uh, but it needs it needs a lot of care. Uh, you know, you have to make sure you get all the weeds. You know, you really have to weed. And uh, it was attacked a few times by some insects. I don't know what kind. And, and I don't spray, so I would lose it a lot. And then the minute it gets really loves hot weather if it's, it goes down to like 68 69 we you know it turns yellow and that's it so it i don't think it's it's that easy to grow also it on the east coast here it rains a lot so i'm not sure if mlochi likes that much water i mean it does you have to water it in the middle east we water it but here the precipitation the rainfall is so high that the leaf actually looks so much different than if you grow it in california here the leaf gets very big and it's very very green where if you buy it in the middle east or in california it the leaf is rougher and it's not as shiny and and there's a different taste yeah so how does how did the the look of my plants in my field and the taste of those plants compare uh, i'll tell you the the look is the leaves are bigger and of course you grow it very high you know it grows very high they are more silky they're softer you know, it tasted delicious. So I'm not going to say what's grown in California and the Middle East tastes better. It tastes different. Yeah, it has a different taste. Uh, and also, like I said, it depends on how you prepare it. You know, I, for example, like it very finely minced. Some people cook it with the, the whole leaf. They don't do anything to it. So you get a totally different taste there. And then what garnishes you put, what uh, we, 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 t we put lemon and maybe some people throw in tomatoes to also get rid of that slimy taste that it has. Um, but Mluchiyya is delicious, and the fresh mluchiyya is definitely more delicious than dried and than the frozen. Awesome. Um, I wonder if you could, just because it's interesting kind of backstory, describe what your family was doing when you first got to California around agriculture and food, and what was the kind of atmosphere at that time in the Central Valley of California? Okay. 
Now, when I first uh, came to California, I lived in Davis, California, which is in Northern California, uh, very close to the city of Sacramento. My fa- we came there because my father is in agribusiness, actually, and he studied at UC Davis. Uh, and then after two and a half years, we moved to, to Central California, and specifically the San Joaquin Valley. And where I had, uh, I lived in a town, uh, I would say 40% of the population were farm workers. Uh, because at, at that, in that area, I believe it was, uh, they grew a lot of almonds and peaches and grapes. And, and then also a lot of people thought I was Mexican because I look very Mexican and they would speak to me in Spanish. And then I, I would first say, I don't speak Spanish. And then I stopped saying that, you know, and, um, and I remember that in the summer, my father insisted on it because he wanted to teach us what, you know, hard work is. And even in Davis, there would be cro- programs for students to work out in, in on the farms. So I remember that I, uh, mainly tomatoes, we would pick tomatoes, okay? And uh, it was a lot of hard work. We were young. We were only like 15, 16, 17, and it's very seasonal work. And we would, uh, they give you buckets, you pick, and of course, the faster you pick, the more money you make. And in those days, they give you a card. And each time you went, uh, ha- you had a full bucket, they punch your card. And at the end of the day, that's how you got paid. And I, now that I think about it, I really loved it. And, um, and, and that's probably why since, you know, I've had, I've always had a garden. I always grow tomatoes in my garden. Were you a fast picker? <laughs> I don't know. I don't think I made that much money. So maybe not. But I'll tell you, some of the adults, you know, the the farm workers who depended on that, I mean, that was their main source of income. They picked very, very fast. Very fast. I mean, they would turn that tomato bushel over, put the bucket between their legs, and just start, you would see the tomatoes fly into the bucket, you know. Wow. And that was the time of Cesar Chavez and a yes. bunch of union organizing. Yes. Were you aware of that at the time? Yes, I was. I was because I even saw a few protests, you know, when I lived in California. And I was aware of the United Farm Workers Union. And also, so interesting, now I had been in California, in the U.S. only a few years, but there were in those days Yemeni farm workers. You know, it's just like they are Yemeni workers in, in this, in the car industry in Detroit. There were Yemeni farm workers in California. And I know that we got so excited because they spoke Arabic and we got to meet them. Yeah. Awesome. Do you remember any other, uh, farmers from other parts of the world there as well? Farm workers? Uh, they were mainly, mainly Mexican and uh, very few Yemeni, but Yemeni in, in the, in, in the San Joaquin Valley in Lodi, California. Uh, farm workers from other countries, I mean, if there were, I didn't know. Uh, so it's possible, you know, I thought they were all Mexicans, but I'm not sure. I was just listening to an episode of by, about the Filipino diaspora yesterday where they talked about actually how a lot of Filipino farm workers were involved in the union, or the boycotts as well. That's, that's very possible, but I didn't know. But that's interesting that you mentioned Filipino because uh, when we first came to this country, my mom would find mulukhiyi in Filipino stores. And yeah, and the Lef- I don't know how they cook it, but they like mulukhiyi. 
but I have no idea how they prepare it. I was just at a seed swap at the library, and there was a Filipino man there who I think calls it saluyo, if I'm remembering correctly, and he was describing how important it was to is to their culture as well. Oh, okay, okay. Um, switching gears a little bit, I would love to hear more about your culinary kind of journey and, you know, having had a Middle Eastern restaurant, a Mediterranean restaurant, what are the most essential ingredients and dishes kind of to your taste of home, so to speak? Um, in in um, Arabic, Middle Eastern, Palestinian, Mediterranean cooking, um, uh, we use a lot of extra virgin olive oil, okay, a, a rice, but a, a hundred years ago, we really did not use rice. We used uh, a wheat, something like friki. Uh, we have a lot of stews, and we cook, we have a lot of vegetarian dishes, but we do cook with lamb and chicken. Uh, it is, we use a lot of garlic, onions, and parsley. Like, for example, I, I don't think I make any dish without uh, onions. You know, and when I saute any kind of meat or even vegetables, I start with onions, with extra virgin olive oil and onions. Uh, we use a lot of beans, for example, chickpeas, which we make the hummus out of. Uh, we use a lot of white beans and stews, and uh, a lot of fresh vegetables, lots of eggplants, and the kusa, which is the gray squash. And we core a lot of these vegetables, and we stuff them with uh, meat and rice, and cook them in a tomato broth. Yeah, the kusa is a basically a zucchini that's very light green colored or gray. And it's interesting because it's also used a lot in Mexican cooking. Yes, it's used a lot in Mexican cooking. And, but the way we use it uh, is much different than the way it's used in Mexican cooking. Uh, uh, we use it, we, and we like the small ones. And what we do is we, we core it, we take the inside out, and we save that. We cook that in, uh, separately. And then we stuff it with the spiced uh, meat and the medium grain rice. At least that's how I make it. And we make it in a tomato broth. Awesome. And so... You know, with your restaurant and with your work that I've witnessed at the Free Library with the Culinary Literacy Center, and I'm sure many other instances, you are really kind of carrying the torch for your traditional cuisine. And, and why is that so important to you and to the world right now? Well, you know what? It, it is so important to me. And I like to concentrate on a few dishes that are distinctly Palestinian. And because of basically what's happening to Palestinians, uh, uh, otherwise I would not concentrate so much on uh, just Palestinian food. Because Palestinian food is also very similar to Syrian, uh, Lebanese, and Jordanian. Of course, each region has uh, their own distinct dishes. And um, so I I've done actually, uh, after I closed my restaurants, I have done some uh, fundraisers, uh, like, uh, you know, I invite people for dinner, and it's for a specific uh, charity organization, but they get to taste really delicious Palestinian dishes. What I've seen with, specifically Malachia, but with so many of the, the seeds that we carry in the catalog, but none more so than Malachia, or Malachie, <laughs> um, is that kind of 
spark of recognition and this like quenching of a thirst for this taste of home that has been longed for for ever since having to leave in a lot of cases by force or or with a restrained like not it's not an ideal situation most people don't leave their home because they want to and so being able to reconnect with this food has been so um satisfying from my perspective from what i've witnessed um with malachie um, and I'm hoping, you know, as we introduce more Middle Eastern varieties like the Kusa and Zatar and so on, um, just to be able to reconnect people with these, these tastes of home when they've been disconnected from their homeland. Um, have you witnessed that as well through your work? Um, uh, yes, of course. I mean, especially about, uh, like I said, the Mluchiyi Kusa, now we can find more in the last 10 years in, in the stores. But Mluchiyi until now is to buy green Mluchiyi is very difficult. I mean, I I would have to drive, and it's only available two months to like uh, northern Jersey where there's a large Palestinian community and there are a few grocery stores that do sell it. Um, but uh, it's... It is. I mean, when you when most Palestinians I know love mluchie, so it does. Uh, you know, it's it's almost eating mluchie is almost emotional. You know, and of course uh, Egyptians. You know, it's kind of considered like, or Egyptians claim that it's their uh, food or one of their primary dishes. Uh, I'm not sure if I agree with that because I've always known mluchie. And 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 I as I said, it is prepared in many different ways. Probably in Egypt, people prepare it a little bit differently than the way I do. But uh, but mluchiyi is like um, it is. It is. I mean, you know, if I call people and tell them, which I did uh, a couple of years ago when Owen was growing the green mluchiyi, they just said, "Are you sure?" They got so excited and 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 you could tell that they were really happy to have to be able to get green mluchiyi is very rare. <laughs> yes, your friends who came out then came out again the following year. And they said, if you plant a whole field of this, we will come and we will tell everybody. <laughs> we will yeah, buy it. This is so important to us. <laughs> and they bring it home and they have their kids pluck the leaves like yeah. you did and like they did when they were kids back home. Yeah, yeah it's beautiful. Awesome. Um, could, could you speak, tell us quickly how you, um, just like an overview of how you prepare it. Oh, okay. Uh, first, I like, uh, I make mluchiyi when it's very finely minced. So I start with that. And I only like to use chicken. So I use, uh, I, I take, let's say, uh, two quarts of water. Well, it doesn't really matter how much, depending on how much chicken you have. I put just salt and pepper. Okay, and I will throw in there uh, like maybe four or six cloves of garlic. And when it boils, I throw the chicken in there and I cook that for maybe about half an hour when it's almost all cooked, almost falling off the bone. And I use chicken with the bone because you want to get really nice broth. Then I will uh, uh, throw in the uh, a very fine mluchiyi, minced mluchiyi. And I let that... Um, boil for maybe five minutes and there's another trick about mluchiyi is at least this is what my mother taught me is that you do not cover the pot okay we just we you after you put the mluchiyi in the broth you don't cover the pot uh we let that it should take that will take about 10 minutes and then on the side i crush some garlic okay i saute that 
in um, with a little bit of salt and pepper. I don't use coriander. A lot of people use coriander. I crush the garlic. I saute that. And then I put it on the top of the emluchiyi that's still cooking and let that cook for maybe three, four minutes. And that's really what gives emluchiyi its uh, uh, final touch. And then I serve it. So I make it not very soupy and not thick so that I, it's like a stew and I serve it with rice. And now some people make it very, very thick and they actually use the pita bread to scoop it. But the way I make it, I make it, I know in Egypt or I've had it at an Egyptian friend, they make it more soupy than I do. Uh, I don't make it very soupy and, and that's it. But then I also, after you have to have uh, lemon, we squeeze lemon on it when we're eating it. And I also make another thing, just crush some more garlic, keep it raw and mix it with lemon juice and hot pepper, jalapeno or whatever green pepper you like. And that we always put that right after we serve it in, in our individual plates. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. And actually, a, a quick side note, because I may do this to this episode or maybe a future episode, I'd love to hear, since we met at a workshop at the Free Library of Philadelphia about sumac and za'atar, what you, any thoughts you have that you could share about za'atar? I know you've grown it, that you use it. Um, we, I just offer, started offering a Lebanese Zatar, which is really like a fine-leafed, very pungent thyme. So, what any thoughts you have about about that? Um, well, sumac, of course, uh, is is a very nice um, um, a spice. Uh, I'm not sure if I would call it spice. It's actually the meat of a berry, and it's very very red. And we use it in a very traditional quote-unquote Palestinian dish, which is called musakhan. And that's usually uh, prepared at the olive uh, harvest season. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, also the Syrians, Lebanese, and Jordanians will use sumac in different ways. Okay. Now, the um, oregano, uh, which is what we make the our za'atar mix out of, Okay, and I just actually happened to make some the other day. And um, it, there are different varieties of oregano. Now, this year I am growing some. A friend of mine, Palestinian friend of mine, gave me some that is more pungent, stronger. And I'm growing it, but I have to dry it to make the actual za'atar mix. Uh, za'atar, I don't know if you know, but just about, I mean, I have it on my counter. I eat it, if not every day, every other day. And basically, it's a mix of ground uh, oregano. Uh, some people will put marahram in there. We use sumac in there. Uh, and then uh, toasted, uh, of course, salt and pepper and toasted sesame seed. And it, it is, I can't even describe the taste. It's so heavenly. And we take the bread, dip it in olive oil, and then dip it in the za'atar mixture. And it's really not any old oregano or thyme will do the trick, right? Yeah, yeah, you have to have the right uh, 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 oregano and thyme. Uh, the oregano, most of the oregano that's grown in this country or the Italian variety, you can use it, but it's not as good. Uh, it's, it's like I said, the, the Palestinian uh, za'atar or the oregano that we use is more pungent. It's more potent. It's, uh, it has a sharper taste. 
Okay, I'm going to take us really quick to a little clip from last fall to 2021 when Anand brought some clippings of za'atar or oregano to our farm and also had me try some menaish with some za'atar on it so you can hear kind of my impression of that delicious pastry. You can, uh, for example, make a pastry out of it, which is called manaish, which uh, I just made this morning. And you make, make some very nice dough and mix the za'atar with olive oil, spread it like a little tiny pizza and um, eat it. I can't wait. Thank you so much for bringing that and for bringing the cuttings last week. Oh, take a, yeah, I'll take a bite on yeah, Mike. I want, I want you to see what it tastes like here. Mmm. <laughs> mm. Pretty good, right? That's delicious. delicious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the sesame. It it's, it's got very good uh, olive oil in there. Mm hmm. Oh, no, I can taste that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, that is awesome. And it's flaky. Yeah. And there's the tartness of the sumac. Yes, absolutely. And the pungent, pungent herb. Of, of, of the za'atar. Yeah. Of the, you know, the, uh, uh, we say za'atar and oregano, but it's a kind of oregano. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love that. And I love olive oil yeah, yeah, yeah. as it I use the best for something like this you want to use really good oil. I only use extra virgin olive oil that's all I use now back to 2020 it would be cool to like talk about the social kind of political aspects of this being that it's a food a diasporic food that you know why is there a diaspora you know why why is it that so many people have had to leave you know this it's it, what's nice about talking about these specific foods is it's like the the hope you know it's the ways that people have stayed connected to their homelands but it's often harder to talk about why did people have to leave you know and so i don't know if there's any kind of closing thoughts you have on that um i i, I like to be able to offer the literal seeds of these very important foods to people who have been disconnected from from where they come from and a lot of times it's harder to talk about why why is that disconnect there um, so how do you kind of deal with that? You also work in the hope side, you know, the food side, the, the side where people are staying connected to their culture, despite being halfway across the world from where they're from. How, how do you think about that? Um, since I am Palestinian, I will talk about most Palestinians who came to this country came after the 1967 war, uh, when Israel occupied the rest of Palestine. And by the way, Israel has been in existence only 71 years, and that's really not such a long time. Basically, in 1948, about 700,000 Palestinians were displaced. Uh, they were expelled. They were terrorized. They uh, fled just because they, have, they had children to take care of their family. They were kicked out. And what's the most important thing about all of this is when there is a war, People will go to a safe place uh, to guard their children, but then they're able to come back. But the Palestinians have not been able to come back. On the contrary, if some tried to uh, to return from the borders, uh, they would be either imprisoned or or shot or or just thrown back into whatever uh, uh, country that they are refugees in. So for me... Uh, you know, I don't know, I'm sure you have been listening a lot to the news lately. Actually, the issue of, of Palestine is 
coming up now in uh, in in the American uh, uh, run for president. You know, I mean, it was never mentioned before. Okay, because. It's when you think about it, it's really also a human rights issue. You know, a lot of people don't know that basically when the state of Israel was established, they let's take Jaffa. Jaffa was a very beautiful Palestinian cities. It had hospitals, it had theaters, it had culture. I mean, basically, the uh, uh, people were kicked out and another set of people were just put in their place. And, uh, you know, uh, why, why should the indigenous people of that land, okay, who have uh, lived there for centuries, become refugees, because another group of people that was a, basically brought the majority of them from Europe to take their homes. So, for me, in my work right now, and and I am retired, but I like to uh, uh, work a lot around food. So I'm always uh, like to say, this is a Palestinian dish, and this is a Palestinian dish, and this is a Palestinian dish, because we don't want, we feel that Basically, the occupation, the Israeli occupation of our land as Palestine is trying to make us disappear. So we try many different ways in saying, hey, we've always been there and we are alive. Beautiful. Thank you. No, absolutely beautiful. Well, thank you so much for sharing that. And thank you for your work, because just the simple act of cooking these dishes, you just put the perfect context for it. It's it's so much deeper than the how delicious it is. It's about so much more. So thank you for that. So follow me on Instagram, Ananzar at Instagram. That's it. Can you spell it for people? A-N-A-N-Z-A-H-R. And you will see a lot of the dishes that I prepare, some recipes. And the whole idea of me having an Instagram account is to inspire you to cook the dishes that I post. (laughs) And it is very inspiring and beautiful. So thank you so much again. You're welcome. You're welcome, Owen. Thank you for everything that you do. Now let's jump ahead to just this week, May 2022, at Anand's house. Okay, we're back at Anand's house. It's been over two years since we were in the same room, and I didn't know at that time that we would be farming temporarily, but for a couple years in the same town as you. So I just zoomed on over after the farm to uh, talk to Anand again, since it's been a while, to see how it's been going for the last couple years. Oh, it's it's been going well, and uh, also um, it's been kind of... Uh, maybe stressful the last couple of months. Uh, I since I am a Palestinian and what's been going on in the West Bank and in Jerusalem, so it has been challenging. Yeah, can you can you talk to people about that? Because that'll also give some context and background to, you know, the importance of your work with Palestinian food. What what's going on in Palestine right now that people should know about? Well. I mean, the bottom line is it's occupation. It's military occupation of 
pretty much half the Palestinian people. Uh, about half of them live in the West Bank. And uh, also Gaza is uh, uh, blockaded, so that's really difficult. And also what has happened in the last... Uh, a week that's been really distressing, the assassination of the journalist Shireen Abu Aqli, which is very, very sad. It's not new. Uh, 50 journalists have been killed in the last 20 years. And almost every other day, a young man is killed in the West Bank. So uh, it's been, you know, sort of like a very... Uh, stressful and upsetting for the Palestinians and for the Arab people. And actually, just last week was the uh, something that we call the Nakba, which is the catastrophe, which happened 74 years ago when uh, Israel got established and about 750 Palestinians were expelled from the homeland. Over 400 villages were systematically destroyed. Um, and actually in the, in the U.S., in just about every major city, last Sunday there was a huge, uh, a protest. Uh, one in Philadelphia, I know New York, San Francisco, LA, Houston, and many, many cities in between. Were you able to attend? Yes, we did. Yeah. Can you describe it a little bit? Yeah, we attended last uh, Sunday in Philadelphia. We all met at uh, Rittenhouse Square and then walked uh, for maybe a mile. And what I found very uh, interesting and made me very happy is that usually at these demonstrations, mainly the attendants were Palestinians, but this time they were not which tells me that more people are finding out about what actually happened when the state of Israel was established. What, what, uh, like, I, I think it's the biggest heist of the century, you know, that you basically create a state by kicking the people who used to live there and bringing others not from, that are not indigenous to live in their place. For many Palestinians, in the diaspora, the hope is to one day return to a free Palestine. Can you talk about what that could look like or how that could happen? You know, a lot of Palestinians hope that that will happen. And I believe that it can only happen also not by having their own state. It's too late for that, way too late for that. You know, the only way that this conflict will be resolved is that we have one state where where Palestinians and Jews live together, of course, under laws that respect everyone. I believe in a one-state solution. You know, I don't believe in two states. Not anymore. I probably did maybe maybe 25 years ago, but it's been looking less and less that that's going to happen. And I think the only resolution is to have a one-state solution. How, 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 how can we get there? Uh, we're going to get there by, I believe, uh, by Israel also getting weaker. You know, and I believe they are. Uh, from the 73 war to the fact that they withdrew from southern Lebanon, they occupied uh, Lebanon for 18 years. And that they also withdrew from Gaza, even though Gaza is suffering and they are terribly, you know, they are blockaded by, by Israel. Israel determines what can, can go in and out 
of Gaza and who can leave, and very few people can leave. So, but I do believe it will happen because I am optimistic. I think the Israelis are getting weaker. And we're looking at 74 years of history, and I believe they are colonizers, you know? And, uh, you know, whoever wants to stay there, they will have to live uh, with their neighbors and treat everybody equally. That's the only way it's going to happen. I wanted to ask you a little bit about, because we talked at the, la the last time we spoke, we were talking about your the way that you're focusing on Palestinian food as a way to say, we're still here and this is our culture. Uh, and I wanted to ask, how, the, how, how has that taken root in your family with your children? Um, and how, how are you passing these things down? Well, first, I, I love to cook. And probably I would say, I mean, I eat out also quite frequently, but when I cook, it's almost always Palestinian food. So my children really love it. And as most of them now live alone, they, they, they call me up all the time. And they say, well, how do you make this? And how do you make that? So they are really cooking in their kitchens, Palestinian food. And that's because I, that's all I prepared at home for them. How's it taste? How's what? Have you tasted your children's food? Yeah, actually, yeah. Because we just came back from uh, from California visiting a daughter, and she likes stews. And a lot of our dishes are made of stews, you know, either vegetarian or meat. But we make stews, and we serve them with rice. And so she did some cooking, and she was pretty good. And then I have a daughter in uh, New York that loves mluchie, for example, and, and gives it to her daughter. And she likes it too, you know. Uh, my sons are good cooks. They're really, really good. I have two sons. And that's what they, uh, you know, they prepare a lot of that, especially for breakfast. We make a lot of hummus and fool and a lot of, um, uh, we have a tomato stew that's really delicious that we eat. We actually scoop it up with bread, you know. So from what I see, they are cooking, uh, you know, Palestinian slash Arabic food in their homes. Mm, so it lives on for the next generations. Yeah, because uh, I prepared it for them. That's beautiful. I'm really trying not to ask you about your fool and tomato stew recipes because I want to close out this episode, but I'll ask you some other time. I love both of those things. Uh, so it lives on in your family here in the diaspora, <laughs> but it also lives on in Palestine. And so can you tell us what people are eating and harvesting right now back home? Back home? Uh, right now, it's the beginning or, yeah, almost the end of spring. So believe it or not, I, um, because I watch uh, 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 and I read Arabic news, there's a lot of luchia in the market. You know, it, they grow it in the valley, in the hot area. Uh, uh, people are making a lot of uh, uh, stuffed uh, zucchini, kusa, and eggplants. I mean, that's that's a big deal there. Or stuffing. We have now a lot of fresh. I even have some tender grape leaves. So they're stuffing and ro rolling grape leaves. And of course, uh, fifty percent of the food is stews. So there's a lot of peas now. Uh, green beans, some. So, but a lot of stews. And and uh, I mean, right now, people are getting it in the in the Arab world from the uh, hot areas. Yeah. How many years has it been since you left? I know you've visited many times, but since you 
left. Yeah. Well, yeah, I came to this country when I was 11. So I came in 65. So, oh God, I've, how many years is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, we accept people can do the math, but yeah. that's a long time. And it's beautiful to me that you have been gone so long, but you still know what people are buying in the marketplace and how they're preparing yeah. it and what they're doing. I, I mean, that's probably because I always, um, uh, you know, every two or three years we go back there for a visit. So, and then my son lived there for 10 years. So he just came back. So I might not go back as often, but I do go, I, I do go back to Northern Palestine where I come from. And I was born in the city called Akka on the Mediterranean. And of course, every time we go, we have to go to Jerusalem, which is one of the most beautiful cities in the world. Uh, even though the weather uh, is much different than my hometown, my hometown is more like Beirut weather, which is very humid and muggy. And Jerusalem is just very nice, dry. I mean, it could get hot, but because it's dry heat, it's very comfortable. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to share your life and your recipes and your love for Palestine and Palestinian food with our listeners. We're, I, I feel very um, honored and grateful for the time you've spent with us. Okay. Thank you very much. Check me out at Ananzar on Instagram. Beautiful. What will people find there? Uh, they're going to find basically dishes that I, you know, I cook at home. Okay. And I will have them there with, with the, uh, you know, description of the dish. Not always uh, recipes, but many of them I do have recipes. And if anybody wants a recipe, they can just message me and I will send them one. Great. I'll be messaging you right after this interview okay. about your fool and tomato stew. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. My pleasure. Thanks so much to Anan Zahar for welcoming me into her home and into her story. And thank you for listening and sharing this episode of Seeds and Their People with your loved ones. Please also subscribe and leave a positive review. Thank you also for supporting our seed keeping and storytelling work by ordering seeds, calendars, and more from our website. TrueLoveSeeds.com. We actually just sold out of our calendars, but we got lots of seeds. Uh, and again, sign up for our Patreon at patreon.com slash trueloveseeds. We can really use your support. And remember, keeping seeds is an act of true love for our ancestors and our collective future.